Welcome everybody, welcome to Singularity Watch. This is a show where we scan the skylines of emerging technologies and try to figure out what the future might look like. I'm Oli, my co-host is Kavya Perlman, founder of the XR Safety Initiative, which is XRSI, award-winning cybersecurity professional and inventor of this timeline. Our guest today is Jesse Damiani, journalist, writer, VR storyteller, and Forbes contributor on emerging technologies. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Kavya. Hello. So I'm going to jump right in. Uh, when we talk about new or emerging technologies, um, it can be rather hard to tell the difference between what is in fact pure hype and what's here to stay. Uh, so <laughs> let's start from that. What would you say is the biggest uh, victim of uh, the hype cycle and which emerging technology has surprised you the most in the opposite sense? Sure. Um, I think it's all about timing and what particular sort of need um, uh, a given solution solves. And so I remember when when I was getting to the VR, into the VR industry in like 2014, 2015, there was this um, massive hype around 360 video content. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm a big believer in 360 video content. Um, but at the time, there was a sense that it was going to become like the next Hollywood or the next video games or something like that. And what we saw is this massive influx of capital um, in the wake of Facebook acquiring Oculus. And you had a bunch of companies that were, you know, big dreamers, well-intentioned, you know, et cetera. But it also meant that there wasn't really a defined market yet. There wasn't really um, an understanding of what people were going to come to VR for. And so what you saw on the aftermath of that is, you know, a bunch of great content, but then also uh, a lot of companies didn't, didn't survive. Um, and they're not necessarily companies that won't survive uh, looking into the next few years or companies in that same category. You know, we need fantastic stories. We need um, a narrative impulse, even when it's not um, properly narrative, that a lot of those folks were trying to bring to the table. But there weren't really any customers yet because we didn't yet have that kind of um, that important balance of convenience. And obviously, we needed a lot of content. But specific different types of content and understanding of where these different things go so right. i think now we're actually looking at what um the vr growth pattern that that i've been thinking is coming for a long time which is much more linear it's not exponential because vr doesn't solve a problem it it, it creates these really resonant experiences and as more people get into it it will start to um solve problems very dramatically and um in in a way that a lot of people will be drawn to but the friction to get in it's not like a cell phone where yeah. um it immediately solved the problem of i need to have uh, uh, connectivity in my pocket when i'm out in the world and not at my desk or not in my house that was an immediate problem that was being solved vr doesn't have something like that um it's a much broader thing so it's going to grow in this in this sort of way so i would say like a major victim of the hype cycle was the i call it early but of course vr has been around for like 50 years but early relative to this new um, sort of resurgence of VR. Um, I do think like, I think back to a lot of these really incredible sort of dreamers and thinkers and entrepreneurs who, you know, their companies just couldn't make it because the hype was really high, but the actual sort of, you know, base for that, um, for whatever the product or, or, or content was just wasn't there. Um, yeah. 
And then honestly, what surprised me is, is I wouldn't even, I don't even know that it necessarily fits in emerging tech, but it's, it's a, it's a core part of emerging tech um, is basically like lightweight wearables. I think what we're seeing is um, in the success of Fitbit and Apple watch and even things like the muse um, uh, brainwave tracking headbands is that people are really interested in, in having a deeper sense of who they are. And of course, like as to the nature of this show, we're going to need to do a lot of work to make sure that that data isn't misused or abused. Um, but as an emerging technology, what an individual can do equipped with that knowledge, I think is really powerful. And I think when they first started coming out, people were kind of like, oh yeah, cool. It's like, you know, good for exercising or whatever. But now we're starting to see the ways that it actually has um, sort of a deep resonance um, uh -huh. culturally. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of, there's a lot of innovation sort of in those pockets. So would you say something that would be more, do you think there totally. are products that are completely hype? Uh, like things like, I don't know, 3D in the cinema or stuff like that. Um, whoops, <laughs> hand glitch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, or would you think that most things follow this kind of cycle that you were describing where they might not come out at the right time and they come back later? Again, I think it comes, I mean, for instance, like you use the example of uh, 3D TV, like in the sort of stereoscopic sense. That's an example of a product that is actually kind of this in between thing between, you know, being able to have full immersion and you know, your traditional viewing experience and wanting to, it's sort of, um, I forget the name of this term, but it's a, it's a term from sci-fi. I think it's called like the big now or the super now, where basically right. you take the technologies of the moment and basically just extrapolate like what is, what is going to be. I remember watching, um, what was it? Red Dwarf. And, uh, you know, it's set in the far, far <laughs> yeah, future. One. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, a, first of all, a fantastic show. I love that show. And I think there's a lot of actually really deep existential questions that it brings up in the context of comedy but there's this one moment where there's like they discover like some old uh tapes and it's sort of this hilarious moment of like oh my god they thought there were going to be tapes you know that far in the future but of course there was no sort of understanding yet that we were going to have technologies that totally eradicated the need for most tapes although we're finding now that tapes are actually a fantastic storage format rather than you know uh, yeah like you know the hard drives we're using so um so yeah, 3D TV, obviously, but I also think like I, I hesitate to name a particular product because right. we don't really know yet um, what things are going to sort of stick around and what things are like, what's meeting a need or providing something really rich and resonant for people. I mean, I guess to follow the, the sort of discussion, like something that fits into the realm that feels like it's not going to work to me, but it also, I could see the outside possibilities where like, wow, people love that are like these foldable phones where it's like, they're trying to bridge the gap between a tablet and sort of a computing device and something more, you know, like, like your, your smartphone. Yeah. And as it stands right now, it looks like a really great curio. It's really fascinating, but it's plagued by so many problems and it's so expensive relative to the average consumer. And the base that it's meeting um, is so narrow that I have a hard time imagining that that's going to be something that really catches fire and becomes something people yeah. love. I totally acknowledge that I could be eating my words in three years. Um, well. <laughs> but to me, it's, it's about thinking about what are the things that are really seeing what people need, really trying to solve those needs, or like in the sort of category creator, cat, you know, category, uh, are you then creating this category where you're showing people that there's this whole better way 
and thereby creating the need and also offering the solution. You know, the, the example everybody uses for this is Uber. Like nobody yeah. was thinking like we need to disrupt taxis. Uh, but then once they did, they're like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of sort of friction and frustrations <laughs> in the process of hailing a taxi. And it's way better to be able to have this sort of like programmatic on-demand version of, of, of taxis. Yeah, yeah. So I, so I think I think that's sort of how I think about it. And, and yeah. Yeah, and it needs change also according to what's available to some extent. I wanted to ask you, you've been known to say that uh, poetry and emerging tech have more in common than many may realize. What does that mean in a nutshell? <laughs> sure. So I think I want to like clarify something that people often think when they think about poetry which the classical right. conception like in the western mind i think is like you know a sonnet and it's something that's like highly emotional um and there's certainly a place and of course instagram poetry has kind of like looped in with that in this really interesting way um so poetry means a lot of different things for a lot of people my training in poetry um was to think about how can you use um, the most evocative language with the least amount of words and to create a system of meaning by thinking about words that um, just by putting them in relationship with each other evoke something beyond the words themselves something that transcends mm. just like the written text that you are engaging with when you're like reading prose or something like that you're you're really trying to not to be sort of you know a little bit like mockish, but you're, you're really painting with words. And when you think about what you're doing, you're trying to create a sense of a thing that, that again, yeah. transcends the, the specific words on the page. I think emerging technologies is doing that same thing with our dreams of what humanity could be and our mm -hmm. dreams of what our relationships to the world and to each other could be. And ultimately emerging technologies in the, in the manner of brevity need to be the most usable, simple, straightforward, intuitive as they can be for them to catch on. Uh, again, why the smartphone worked is that you can be a really lightweight user of a smartphone or a power user, and it's still gonna bring you a lot of function and joy. Um, and then of course, like my personal, like my personal sort of stake in this is, when you're able to kind of bring creativity and bring art into these things that a lot of people think are dry and the mundane technologies of their lives, there's this unique opportunity to bring um, resonance and magic into their lives in a very surprising way. It's much harder. You can still do it with film or with a novel or you know any other legacy format, but you have so much more potential to surprise and to explore with emerging technology driven, you know, creative and, and, and artistic content. Uh -huh. So that's really what excites me. That's, yeah, that's already un, not something you, I would have thought of, to be honest. So, something not, you don't hear people say that, make that kind of parallel between the two things very often. So, uh, it's pretty original, to be honest. As a journalist, who is your audience, uh, when you write about these topics, emerging tech, for example? I view my role, I think, any journalist is going to answer that question differently depending on who they are and where they publish. Yeah. Um, my attitude is I'm always trying to write um, in a translational way. I'm always trying to draw new people in who feel like that it's inaccessible to them. I'm always trying to sort of create the context. So I don't have like an individual demographic that I look so you're at a bridge. as my audience. I'm trying to be. I'm not saying that I'm okay. always succeeding. And, and of course, there are times where I'm going to cover something that's much more technical, technical that like you probably do need a little bit of context. Uh -huh. I'm always going to make sure to link out to wherever you can find that context. Um, but for me, it's really like I want to I'm wanting to really um, crystallize for other people 
why this excites me about the application for everybody, uh -huh. not really get lost in like the high end, you know, the tech specs or like get really drunk on the technologies, which, which oftentimes are, you know, really amazing and really impressive. Um, but for me, I think it's important that there's an increased sort of fluency and literacy among the mainstream about what these technologies are, even if they don't understand the underlying mechanics, understanding what it does and how it operates in a basic way is really important because right now what you find is a lot of people just sort of think it's like not magic. They just think it's just sort of like happening and that they can't participate in it. And it's like sort of being right, right, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, like you, you want to teach in a way, way but you know, sort of a, a very practical way, like teach people to be a part of things. Going back to the subject of, I guess, the masses in a way, because that's what you were kind of talking about. Um, we live in a very polarized era, uh, and facts always seem to be disputed or debatable. Nothing. There's no real kind of fixed narrative about, you know, some, this is the truth. This isn't, you know, it's everything is a bit sort of vague and, uh, smoky. Uh, and one of the most crucial missions of journalists is to keep the trust intact or rebuild it with whoever they're talking to. How does this apply to emerging tech and how can we maintain the trust of those following us in this domain? This is a, this is a great question. It's a huge question. Um, I'm going to try to be brief in my response because I spend most of my time thinking about this. I'm actually working on a book that really Venn diagram overlaps with this topic. It's not this topic uh -huh. exactly. Um, because we're now in a moment where simulation is a part of everything we do. I mean, obviously our, our minds are simulating a mental model of reality even when we're not wearing VR headsets. But now we're kind of going into these different levels, whether we're talking about headsets, you know, Reddit, Twitter, these are all different sort of simulated realities that we're entering with different rules and different logics. Um, and what we've found in the past, I don't know, let's call it five years, of course it's been going on much longer, but in, in America in particular, what we've seen is that people that know how to sort of hijack and abuse um, these these sort of simulated realities, um, it's almost the equivalent of when you think about, you know, regular uh, procreation versus like gene edited procreation where people can go okay. in and say like, I'm going to edit, you know, this kid to have, you know, I'll use you as an example, like blue eyes and blonde hair and I want a nice thick beard and et cetera. I'm not saying, you know, that's the level of sort of reality manipulation that is possible now using the mechanisms of news and influence. So you can see the ways in which these um, streams of information Basically, it's, you know, they use the sort of term Potemkin village. So you see the way that something that starts off as propaganda out and out, then doubles down and is framed in these sort of, uh, you know, uh, interrogative um, probing sort of like, is da-da-da, da-da-da, is, is this happening? And it began its life as a lie. But it take it carries so much steam that then it, you see it on certain actual proper news outlets because they feel like they have to now cover this thing because it's what different people are talking about and what it's, it's becoming news. So they've literally invented reality. Um, so that's yeah. that's sort of the difference when we're thinking about the jump that we've made into an internet era of news is that now there's this co-creative aspects and with co-creative aspects there's much more potential for manipulation. So what do we do about that? If I had the answer to that, uh, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm urgently trying to find the answer to that. If you had the answer to that, yeah, <laughs> it, it would be a dangerous situation to be in. 
Exactly. Yeah. I, I think, <laughs> I think the, I think the starting point is, yeah, you have to stay, you know, you have to present facts in a very sober expertise, research driven way and double down on, um, a different way of sort of grappling with news that like, how do you, how do you teach an audience through the work that you put into the world implicitly, how they should be engaging with news? How do you bake in, you know, the, that we should believe, um, you know, the work of scientists and, and, you know, in the case, like there's a lot of, um, conspiracy thinking sort of riddle. America is riddled with conspiracy thinking from its, its earliest, days where we're a conspiracy prone people and we've had a we've played a major part in sort of crafting the media landscape uh that the world engages in now so when you when you've got this sort of convergence of all these factors it becomes really really sticky and when you have people that you know have very specific possibly nefarious ends um they're they're using it uh in a way that the people that are supposed to be countering it don't even know how to sort of fight back. It's like, if you spend all your time going and fighting all these preposterous sort of theories, what then you haven't, you've actually like given oxygen to those, to those very theories. Yeah. And um, it doesn't seem to work either. Uh, apparently. No, precisely. Precisely. Okay. Yeah. So I think, yes, journalists absolutely have a responsibility to do it. And I think a lot of people are trying. Um, I think I think there's also something a little bit more core that we have to sort of get to, which is how do we create consensus again? Because really, whatever we used to call reality was just consensus. Like what science is showing us is that we actually the I think therefore I am is truer than even the metaphorical sort of ideas. Like you construct reality in your mind, and actually the the whatever we'll call objective reality, you are not seeing. You are seeing whatever your mind is simulating. So then when we, when we had these, these sort of, when you look to the past and you say like, oh yeah, everybody believed in the same reality, they were all sort of agreeing enough with each other's individual realities to create consensus. And of course, those are the contexts when there's consensus, when humanity is either at its, it, I shouldn't say best or worst, is when it's, it's most effective. When people all believe in enough of the same things and move in that one direction, that's when we have uh -huh. you know, major growth in any qualitative direction. So if the problem right now is that bad actors are using these reality streams to basically fracture reality and make people believe that there's no point and that there's no truth to be had, then that's really what we have to kind of get back to. Um, and that's what I'd like to try to figure out, but I won't pretend to have the answers. Okay, well, I think that's um, something one could do a whole episode on, maybe even five, six. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have to find the ways to figure out, like, how do we get the trust back or how do we build the trust? In fact, um, I'm so glad we're engaging in this uh, XR Safety Awareness Month where we'll, you know, conduct this one month long sort of experiment as to how to rebuild that trust back. Have you encountered ways that we can use uh, XR to create XR, let's say, safety awareness or build this trust? Like, you've been obviously been a vocal uh, messenger to talk about you know, how emerging technologies are influencing people, manipulating people. What about the positive aspects? Like, have you noticed that? And uh, perhaps you know, in the coming months that we've signed up to do the XR Safety Awareness Month, uh, what, what are the various ways that we could utilize these very technologies to now create awareness? 
Well, I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of the work that you're doing is a great starting point, you know, creating because cre what you're doing at base is creating this starting point and saying this is what safety and inclusion looks like this is these are the sort of pieces of the recipe like i can't you know make the meal for you but these are the pieces of the recipe i also think where emerging technologies in particular immersive technologies can be really valuable at least for now is that as the as the as we're a growing community as as new folks are coming in creating frames for engagement and dialogue and adding a human component to that because i think one thing that's fascinating is that so much of social media right now is predicated on written language and written language is a fixed system in some sense. It, it manifests in the like, I know that, the, you know, when we talk about left and right brain, that's not, you know, as scientifically accurate as people thought, you know, several decades ago. But the, but the metaphor of the left brain is where language sits. It's rigid. It doesn't leave room for um, sort of uh, it makes it, it it drives folks much more toward dissent if mm -hmm. the um, I won't get into like thinking about the ways that algorithms um, and and surveillance capitalism sort of correlate. Uh, that paired with language is, can 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 become something very toxic. When you're right. in person with somebody, and particularly in space where like we're recording this now, but the vast majority of social VR interactions aren't recorded, so it feels much more like real life. That's a space where it can be much safer for folks to sort of learn and um, start to have conversations that maybe they're scared to put in writing on the Internet. Mm. Um, I think it really starts with um, one, just being able to share knowledge and ask questions in a safe space. And I think that I think that goes in all directions. Like, I think people need to recognize when somebody's trolling or being toxic versus when they're legitimately trying to learn, but maybe doing so in a clunky you know, ungraceful way um, and, 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 and draw people in rather than sort of repel them. What about the individual and artists? Like what role do we have to play in all of this as we step forward towards these immersive domains? Do we have to fear these devices? Or what, what, what can we go with? Like, of course, awareness, but like, what shall we think about as we are stepping into these domain as an individual, as a journalist, as an artist? So this is going to sound coy, but I don't mean it to be coy. Oh, and this gets back to the point that I actually just lost. We have to depressurize. <laughs> like we have, it's, it is urgent that we depressurize. So how do you depressurize? Well, one of the ways is just have fun. Just play around. Mm. And creativity, art, storytelling, these are spaces where it is many times the easiest to just have fun to just experience something with somebody else and not think about like oh are you on the red team or the blue team or are you this or that it's just like you can just go have fun you can go play capture the flag you can throw you know tomatoes and big like there's all these different things that you can do <laughs> that are just goofy and silly and from right. the goofy silly baseline you can start to sort of move into sort of deeper but there's that basis of trust and that basis of like well i know some things about you and i know you're a good person or I know you're striving to be good and I know I'm striving to be good and maybe we disagree on this thing but perhaps there's a way that we can start to communicate with each other about that difficult thing because we did the, the fun thing totally. and then on on the aspect of like art in particular so like moving in my mind I sort of structure it as like there's creativity and then there's like like the there's like art art capital a art there's the art that's the 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 reflection of rigorous critical engagement 
um, a strong aesthetic sense, you know, an experience engaging with media and with your particular medium, where you're really trying to deliver a particular experience. It's not just meant to be fun. It's meant to mm -hmm. be something that really evokes um, both, both uh, like that qualia, that like conscious experience, sort of like that you feel in your body. It's meant right. to have aesthetic pleasure or displeasure. And it's meant to make you engage with an idea, some type right. of, there's some thesis about the world or, you know, the universe that you're supposed to be engaging with. So with art in particular, what I think can be really valuable is that now you have a space where maybe the, the entry point to that conversation has been made for you. Maybe uh, there's a particular sort of notion about climate change underlying uh, a piece that, you know, you on its face, you maybe don't realize that when you first come in, you're like, wow, it's beautiful. But then you start to realize like, oh, this is about, you know, the destruction of coral reefs or what, whatever it is. And yep. now you have an entry point to the conversation. So to me, that's that's how I think about those topics being really important or those, those, those areas being really important for depressurizing. Such a valuable point. And that's what we really need to do. We need to just make it. We don't have to think of it as a tech tech thing. We just need to know that anyone anywhere can extend their realities. Right, Ollie? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of stuff, loads and loads of things that you could sort of say about that but i'm gonna go on with the thing um <laughs> so i wanted to ask you uh in the past few years we've experienced an ever-growing number of scandals uh related to data misuse and or manipulation did you see that coming um i think everybody theoretically saw it coming they saw the risks i think the particular ways of course were a surprise you know the the like the touch point example that everybody uses now of Cambridge Analytica, I think, um, is the stand in for what a lot of people are sounding the alarm about. Um, you know, Kathy O'Neill published Weapons of Math Destruction, I believe, in 2016, which means that she was writing about that leading up to that in 2013, 2014. So, like, we've had this on the mind for a while. Um, right. I think what was what was unique about the ways it was used in the 2016 election is that it was actually a lot of people like to think of like oh cambridge analytica you know they they use this micro targeting in this particular way and it's like yes that's true but really what we saw and what why it worked is because what they did was they correctly identified the existing fissures among people, the existing fissures in the fabric or like tears in the fabric of society that existed already. And they exacerbated them, not just with the paid advertising, but by actually like in, injecting fake players into social media spheres. So you had people that yeah. were leading groups that were that were just the, the result of, you know, they were they were they were they appeared to be real people but they were operated by totally different people who weren't on the ground so you had people staging protests and counter protests that had been created and then fomented by fake mm -hmm. players that mm -hmm. type of thing i think really caught people off guard i think a lot of people were thinking like oh algorithms of course target the most vulnerable you know uh, for-profit um colleges targeting you know recent widows and widowers in you know lower income neighborhoods and and you know framing loans as being like free money rather than something that was going to put them in a lifetime of debt for a useless degree like things like that i think were more in the realm of what people expected but i think i think the the way it was deployed in 2016 that we're now seeing deployed sort of at an order of magnitude beyond that 
is actually just using the like quote unquote free the the sort of inhabiting and personification of real people and and the fact that we've sort of accepted that the fact that like we've accepted that there can be a twitter presence with like you know a little drawing as the you know the 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 avatar photo um and that like that could be a real person it might not be a real person we have that sort of like yeah. schrodinger's cat engagement with so many people on the internet now um and i think that's that's been something that i think existed in this middle space between what we thought about algorithms and what we thought like virtual worlds were, were going to become uh-huh yeah it's uh makes me think what you said that you know you can have all the most evolved techniques of manipulation but you need kind of a fertile land to to be able to apply those things so there must be some kind of immunity that can be um achieved in a different moment or something like that uh, we'll actually get to that in another question but um also in the regarding data um in general do you think the world's a better and safer place now after everything we've discovered and uncovered and are we learning from past mistakes <laughs> uh, <laughs> i think the world has the potential to be a better and safer place now but i think for obvious reason i don't believe it is currently um yeah. mm -hmm. what's encouraging is that we have you know work like the work that you're doing work that a lot of advocates um are really have have been sort of sounding the alarm on but now a lot more people are taking seriously i'm encouraged by that um i think there's i think we recognize that there's a problem but my sense is the way that like the sort of surveillance capitalist model um i don't necessarily think we can change that i think what we really need to because because there's so many positive applications of data um that i think there's too much baked in incentive among too many people but i do think there's a way to start thinking about you know a public data commons a, a, a space in which everybody can can basically be in charge of what data they do and do not share where there's some mm -hmm. type of compensation whether that's you know literal money or like in-kind privileges um and so there, just basically there being more transparency and then on the other end more obfuscation more anonymization and more effective anonymization like there's this whole middle layer this like gray area of ad tech that can triangulate all these different data points about you and they they are immune from regulation because they are not the actual social media companies themselves right. but they can triangulate your credit card data your location data and they and they basically all can work in this like unholy communion and then sell that back to the social media companies who didn't track it about you but they have it now um, and not just social media information companies anything like that um, and I think we really need to target that and we need to figure out how can we allow the data to still be used so that it makes our products better and it makes us better, you know, it makes medicine better and safety, it improves safety, um, but that it also doesn't unfairly target anyone or do so in this sort of shadowy, confusing way that's sort of impossible to, um, to penetrate. So, so do I think we have the potential to live in a safe world because of these technologies? Absolutely. And I think that's what all three of us are sort of fighting to make happen. As it stands right now, with the track that we're on right now, the world is increasingly becoming a more dangerous place. Oh, no, I would agree. Absolutely. We're, we're looking at a very um, dangerous landscape uh, preparing for the U.S. election. In fact, Facebook and other folks have mentioned that they are going to suspend some of these political campaigns and whatnot. So very dangerous for sure. Totally. Mm. Since very early times, the world of information has been pondering the evolution of journalism and media in the digital era. 
Um, the end of printed media was a hot topic around 2005. What is the thing on everyone's mind right now? I mean, I think we're still, we're that, that, that particular, um, conversation is an ongoing one. Um, and I think figuring out what role do media organizations play? I mean, there's the larger conversation of like, should media be public or private or what, what relationship of public and private media should exist? Cause we've seen good and bad examples of that all around the world. Uh, and so, so I think that's an ongoing conversation. I'll be curious to see how it evolves. Um, what I think individual media organizations are trying to figure out right now is they say, okay, we can tell that basically there's a, like the bottom is about to fall out from under the um, click-based advertising model. And even right. the like branded advertorial model where it like reads like an article, uh, but in, you know, it's specified as being a sponsored post um, and it, you know, pushes a particular product or service that isn't, that's already not sustaining uh, most media companies um, other than the sort of, most flexible and shrewd um and honestly the ones that are the most converged so they have like a ton of different media properties that they right. can farm these um i think where where the thinking lies now is how do you become a community that people want to gather around so it's not just about the news itself because you know the inclination of information is to be free even when it's behind sort of paywalls like sorry my hands are going all over the place um, <laughs> as to as to the sort of uh, both magic of emerging technologies and also the uh, sometimes jankiness of them, um, I think really thinking about like how do you become a community? How do you become a place where you're excited not only for the story but the commenters and to be able to engage with the commenters? And what role does the um, you know the platform of the individual journalists or journalists look like? You know what's happening now is we're seeing a lot of. Um, a lot of journalists are starting their own Patreons and their own Substacks to themselves become almost like a, a like a media property, as much as just based on the sort of power of their brand. And then that, of course, can be leveraged in conversations about you know getting hired at different mm -hmm. spaces. So I think we're in that in that really murky, complicated area as an industry of. Okay, we know we need to be more than just news, but what is that additional thing? And I think where a lot of the thinking lies right now is being a community. Okay, yeah, that's, that's something that you it's sort of um, an undertone that you can kind of feel around a bit. Uh, I, it's not something I'd ever managed to put into words myself. So that's, you know, thanks for kind of articulating that in some way. Uh, <laughs> that's guess what you do, right? <laughs> Emerging tech certainly has a dark side, but it's about more than concerns and uh, fears about the future. What do you think are the main improvements in a sector like, for instance, art? I think for me, and the reason that I'm excited about emerging technology, art, and, and you know, there's all these different names thrown around, like at the turn of the last century, sort of new media became the term for these, you know, these art forms that were coming as a result of technology. And I think ultimately new media still is the overall term, but we need to sort of reframe what we mean. Um, and that mm -hmm. is an ongoing idea. There's also emerging media, you know, da, 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 da. So all of that, what excites me about the new 21st century realm of digital and, you know, new, new medium, you know, emerging media work. <laughs> this is crazy with my um, and I'm a hand talker so it really you know it really becomes a thing um, is uh, is the possibility of the two-way interaction that actually there's a new relationship that's emerged between art artist and um, audience so it's 
you have you have an artist who thinks through what an engagement is it invites audiences into the art and the art is therefore unique to the person experiencing it or unique in right. a way that it hasn't necessarily been of course everybody's experience of everything is unique but when you have you know programmatic art that responds specifically to your presence in the ways that you embody your presence you know when you move the the sensors yeah. track you and, and, and interpolates you um that to me is a really exciting prospect because it allows people to kind of have more of that mind meld with the creator and with you know with the artists and so thinking about that both in terms of physical spaces uh where you know people can be in a space and realize that the art can perceive them and also of course then indicate to them how powerful this, the, the technologies are that are around them all the time that they maybe didn't think about. Mm -hmm. And then also art that takes place in a, in a fully virtual context where, you know, you put on your headset or you bring it into your own home through augmented reality and you engage uh -huh. with it there. You now have a more intimate um, sort of relationship with what it is because it's in the situation of your quote unquote personal space. So Jesse, I'm going to pick up the conversation you two were having just a little bit ago and want to ask you, um, we are in this time, pre-US presidential election time, and we, you just hinted at the Cambridge Analytica scandal. We talked about how that impacted all of us. So during Cambridge Analytica, I was working with Facebook and you know doing third-party security. We saw that there are so many data points that you can collect based off of social media, uh, scraping someone's account and whatnot. Now with VR and AR, there is over like, two million data points you can gather in 20 minutes. We had the Stanford, had the research conducted. So what do you think is gonna potentially be the new Cambridge Analytica scandal? Because sometimes I'm talking to people and they're like, well, you know, I've got nothing to lose. I'm gonna pick up this new cheap headset that came out. So just in terms of awareness, you know, we gotta be thinking about what could really go wrong and what would that look like with the convergence of all these other technologies? Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think the potentials, um, it's really sort of daunting to think about because unlike how people maybe act on Twitter uh, or on Facebook, when we're talking about the data you can gather, biometric data you can gather off of something as simple as a headset, much less when you start to add in, you know, uh, shoes that are adding haptics and, and wristbands and gloves and, you know, all the other things that we suspect are coming, um, you can actually get a really clear image of who that human being in space is, which doesn't, is not limited just to the virtual world. Um, I mean, the fact that gate tracking is a more um, specific signature than a thumbprint. I mean, I don't think people really understand that. Um, and, and, you know, there's artists actually trying to play with that of like, what would the version of a, of a suit be that basically um, obfuscated your gate uh, so that people, so that you couldn't be um, sort of targeted in that way. I think we're in a unique moment with VR where, as I said, I think the growth will be linear. And even if it's not linear, the exponent will be really, will be really, it'll be, the J curve will be a very long, slow J curve if there is one, which means we have time to, while the influx is steady, to really start to kind of sort of lay the groundwork of understanding like the work that you're doing. Um, and I think that's urgently important because we obviously did not do that with smartphones and social media. Um, and 
we can look back and see how the the sort of techno optimist you know utopian dreams of the 90s very rapidly sort of flipped into the what would become like a surveillance capitalist context um because we weren't being because we were start so starry-eyed at that time about what the co potential connection could be through the internet that, that we weren't scrupulous i think we have the luxury of a being able to be scrupulous and b not having this sort of massive influx of people that become much harder to sort of get on the same page and sort of provide a context for what's going on and what can be done. Again, getting back to the earlier point, I think I'm not seeing enough of that right now, which is why mm. again, it's exciting the work that you're doing because this is this really precious moment. Like we can't go back and undo as we've seen time and time totally. again, going back and undoing is at best a monumental expensive feat. And more often it's just flat out impossible. Almost impossible, yeah, exactly. It's almost like, you know, we're in this era of seeing is no longer believing and anyone can now take all those data points and alter my reality at some point. <laughs> and we've got this maybe one year, one and a half year of runway before all these glasses become ubiquitous and then, then we're at loss. So that's what we got. And I'm glad that we are working together on this because we, we have a lot of work to do. For sure. For sure. And I, I would say, like, I think we have a little bit more time, like a year and a half until, you know, we start to talk about like Apple being a meaningful participant in this. And, you know, so but I, I still even think there I, like I don't think it's like, oh, Apple's out and now we're we're screwed. You know, we can't. I think this I think this is something we have to keep pushing at um, even once more and more sort of cheap or not cheap, but effective VR and yes. AR wearables are, mm -hmm. are out. Absolutely. It's it's comforting in a way that you mentioned that the growth of these technologies is a bit more linear rather than exponential because it does mean that there's more time to kind of get this stuff in. Uh, and it's not like a blitz, you know. Um, going back to art, uh, you're the director of the, pardon my pronunciation, I'm not so sure if the if it's the NXT or the Nuxt, which sounds kind of cool to me, but I don't know. Uh, how do you pronounce that? <laughs> next, like the word next. All right, next. Okay. So the next museum, uh, the first museum in the Netherlands dedicated to new media art. Can you tell us more about this uh, project? What's it all about? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'll establish off the top, I'm not one of the founders. So, I'll, you know, I'm speaking from my experience. Uh, you know, I met them at yeah. Sonar Plus D in Barcelona last year, uh, you know, back when Americans could travel uh, to the European Union. Um, and we really sort of hit it off and they had this vision for, you know, a dedicated space where the type of work that was coming through Sonar Plus D and Ars Electronica and, and South by Southwest and, you know, all, you know, all these other, um, you know, digital and new media mm -hmm. sort of art showcases could like live in a more permanent way. And so, you know, to, to truncate a, a long sort of history and their growth. I mean, they've been so savvy and, and uh, effective at growing a team and um, really ha making sure everybody's always on the same page. And I, of course, am like the one over in America <laughs> and like <laughs> all my plans to be there for the opening and everything were, you know, of course, shot um, by oh, COVID. Yeah, like, I still haven't seen the, the last time I saw the space, it was a big empty space and, and I was looking at, at it with them for the first time. Um, but so, you know, the idea is, again, to make that space for um, the art that right now is most of the time not given the sort of museum gravitas and the museum sort of um, rigor and depth. And it's more like flashy, cool, new thing that you can come play with. But it's not then given the same um, sort of uh, 
curiosity and um, uh, intellectual exploration that you might give, you know, right. the Mona Lisa or what have you. Um, so that's really the goal in the in the broadest possible terms is really just make a space where you know that type of work gets the gets the um, is treated with the seriousness that it deserves. Um, uh -huh. The the opening exhibition shifting proximities is really exploring this idea of proximity so a lot of the the work you know is sensing you in some particular way or another and exploring you know a proximity can be something very near proximity can be something right. very far the point the point you were making before about the point you were making before about people interacting with the art like uh totally uh right so that's um something that makes me think more about theater actually than static art as we kind of tend to think of art um there's even there's even a game where there's they've got actors. I think it's called the Under Presents. You have actors actually in the game. That's a pretty cool idea. I haven't tried it out yet. But. Oh, it's, um, it's a, that, that's an exceptional experience. Is it good? Just wonderful. I've never tried. It's wonderful. Yeah. I wanted to ask you the kind of the something which is a bit of a loaded question. Uh, the word of 2020 is vaccine because uh, you know it's kind of on everybody's minds. Um, so what would your vaccine be for misinformation and fake news? And something I, I want to add to this is, um, we were talking to Caviar the other day. We were, one, you know, we were thinking about the fact that when you talk about things like fake news and worrying about privacy and stuff like that, it's not something that people kind of find cool. You know, it's not like, um, it's not easy to sell us something cool to be worrying about that. So what, what are your thoughts on that? How do you get people to sort of, uh, you know, take notice and how do you, What's the solution? <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, I, I won't claim to have any one single solution. In fact, if we're talking in the language of vaccines, I would probably argue that this, that a vaccine for something as sort of broad and far reaching as this would operate more like those vaccines you take once every two years for, you know, a number of years. Right. Um, it's not something that you take one time and are vaccinated against. Um, right, right. Of, of course. Human because nature. I think it's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, well, and, and more than that, more than it just being human nature, it's that we've brought we've brought into the fore systems and as a function of that, people who understand how to manipulate those systems at a time of where the um, degradation of education, certainly in America, um, we're, we're basically sort of anemic in terms of as a culture, in terms of our our literacy and fluency in in critically engaging with media at a time when there's a small number of people who are incredibly um, adept at sending out the type of manipulate manipulative content that you know exacerbates this sort of fake news um, problem right so we have to sort of turn to like what if what do people do to get people out of cults what do people do to what have people historically done to combat propaganda um, and again what I come back to is you have to sort of find ways to facilitate more critical thinking and more sort of um, a skepticism at anything that comes in, but also the ability to, once you've started from a place of skepticism, verifying like, oh, I can believe this now because these different um, factors have sort of demonstrated to me that this is a reliable piece of information or, or sort of report. Um, and then also from a social standpoint is, is again, depressurizing. Um, because so much of the problem right now is actually the result of problems that exist in society outside the internet. There are problems that are, in some sense, age old, you know, racism, 
sexism, uh, just xenophobia in general, homophobia in general, anti-Semitism. Um, so we see this. We see this in so many different ways that actually, like a lot of these conspiracies that feel new, are actually rooted in like the oldest forms of hate. And and so again, it's like it's less about trying to. It's almost like trying to target the media is a few steps down the line. Unfortunately, like we hate thinking about it this way, where it's like, wow, like that's we see this huge problem of the media, but it's actually not anything that we can address if the underlying reality like the underlying it's sort of like pulling up a weed but not pulling up the roots of the weed if you don't pull up yeah, the roots of, of the weed we're just going to get more and more weeds um and so that's i think like that's where this type of work is really helpful because it's not trying to say like hey we need to like throw out you know it's baby with the bathwater throw out the media and start anew it's like no we can't do that what we need is for there to be an audience of people who know how to critically engage with it yeah. and for, for their impulse to not be to look for the, the worst in people that disagree with them. Do you think that um, in some, to some degree, uh, the fact of having uh, such a user-friendly wor uh, world now, so, I mean, everything we do is kind of easy to do. We're not um, forced to really use our brains as much. And don't you think that's kind of working in the opposite direction? I mean, I remember there was a, a study where they showed that if uh, a f if you read a font, which is very easy to read, really comic-style font, you're not going to learn as much as if you read uh, a difficult small-type font. Uh, that was actually in a pretty famous book. I um, can't remember the name right now, but anyway. Um, and my point is, do you think that there's anything that we don't really want to see, but that might be that we sometimes we have to kind of make life a bit harder for us ourselves and rather than easier in terms of learning, like make more of an effort and have less um, things just given to us uh, fast and easy, like technology tends to do a bit? Yeah, it's a tough question. It's like, I mean, you know, nutrition experts have been trying to get people to understand the value and, and hack the brain to eat vegetables for yeah. <laughs> you know so long it's like it's the same type of thing it's like do you want the like easy sweet adrenaline yeah, inducing hit or do you want the thing that's actually gonna you know make you sort of a healthy person um it again it's culture me, because yeah totally totally because if it, you it live in a place that, where that's been yeah sorry interrupt. yeah no exactly <laughs> so yeah but, you, but that's that's exactly the point it seems to me that we need to we need to really think about okay, what's the, where can we meet people where they are to start to get to the place we want to get. So if where if where people are is on social media platforms and they need to start with a really sort of specific broad idea to to be brought into the deeper sort of more um, specific content, maybe that's the way to go. Maybe there's some cases mm -hmm. where that that's the totally wrong move to make. Um, I think it really you know like like anything you put in the world it comes down to who's your audience and how much work have you done to empathize with their position and if you can think about if you can take into account that that position that they're coming from i mean we we know from psychology that the the best way to get people to um change their mind about anything is to meet them where they are show show them how you are the same all the ways in which you are the same and nudge the conversation out from that position rather than coming right, in and trying okay. to attack on that like one tip that's all the way on the other end that's never going to work that's never going to get people to you know agree with your position yeah, what's going to work is is nudging them away from sort of where you are
It's funny that you both arrived at the vegetarian because earlier when Ali and I we were discussing the same thing about <laughs> privacy and he was like the saying the same thing is like it's trying to teach people how to not eat meat or something similar and, and it's the same thing is so I, I like that those two things though depressurize empathize and meet people where they are and then we can you know build from there totally yeah well, think about think about impossible meats you know like you use a meat example people are like we have made it clear that we want hamburgers and we're always going to want hamburgers and you're never going to make us not want hamburgers so somebody right. came along and said well, we're going to actually work on making a plant burger that's really delicious and now you have that and now there's all these meaningful conversations happening about you know the you know factory farming and stuff like that that we're trying to make their way out but people are like yeah yeah i get you but i still want to eat a hamburger so exactly. if we take the example of the impossible burger with Armenia, maybe there's something there for us. Although I'm more renowned for my love of cookies, but never mind that. Oh, um, yeah. so, <laughs> <laughs> so as always, at the end of each episode, uh, we ask everyone what the word singularity means to them. It's actually a way to get people to come up with interesting things. Um, so what does it mean to you? And do you think we'll reach one in the foreseeable future? Uh, so I, I fall into the, like the, the sort of broad camp. I mean, obviously there's the, the read with like a super intelligence explosion, um, where technology becomes basically, uh, so much more advanced than us that it becomes the quote superior species. Um, uh -huh. I, and you know, I think that's, that's an interesting discussion. I don't want to poo poo that discussion. Um, but I, I want to dial the way I think about the singularity is dialed back in the sense that you can have cultural singularities, you can have linguistic singularities, you can have um, theoretical singularities and, you know, singularities like that are that are more abstract, where really um, something has become so powerful or so or so sort of inescapable that it has redirected the entire understanding of that thing, that field, that idea, that concept, what have you. Um, and it's reoriented it. And so because I guess with the with the artificial superintelligence explosion, one, I think we're I don't even think that's the right conversation to have, really. I think it's a distraction from the conversations we need to have about algorithms. But I also mm -hmm. think even if it were hypothetically possible, it's very far from us. And mm -hmm. it and it and it, and it um, projects uh, it anthropomorphizes algorithms in a way that that's just not how algorithms work. Unless you were right. to literally design an algorithm whose whole purpose was to overthrow humanity, which require if you think about all the like individual narrow tasks that it has to sort of have on hand to do that, you start to realize like, oh, like, we just got like decent voice to text transcript. You know what I mean? Like we're a long <laughs> way from anything. Um, so yeah, so I think, I think really where we should be thinking about singularity is where have we gotten to the point with any technology where it has completely reframed what regular quote IRL or AFK life is? Um, you know, I think like there was a singularity when smartphones occurred. And I think there there hasn't yet been the singularity of VR, but I think the sort of VR singularity is coming where we start to do more and more things in VR. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's how I think about t singularities in terms of technology is that there's actually ironically not one singularity. There's like there's right. just ongoing singularities that occur across different technologies, ideas, concepts, you know, what have you. Okay, so multipalities or something like that. Thanks for thanks for being here. Um, thanks for having it's me. It's been a pleasure to to talk to you. And you've said so many things. It's like we could take each one and like expand it. Um, <laughs> so you know, I feel like we've kind of uh, just scratched the surface uh, talking yeah. to you. But it's been really really interesting. Big thanks also to Kavya, uh, Kavya Perlman, 
and Marco Magnano, who you can't see, who's the editor of the show, and the team, who you can't see, but they're over there, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to anyone listening or viewing, um, this is the third episode, there'll be many more coming, and you can follow us on readyhacker1.com, watch the shows, there's a couple more before this, and there's going to be many more in the future, uh, on YouTube, just type in Singularity Watch, um, and you can also see the podcast, uh, hear the podcast rather on Spotify, Spreaker, and Apple Podcasts. Okay. And that's all for now. Happy journeys.